everyone and welcome. If it's your first time listening to No Wonder, my name is Juni, and in this podcast we talk about all things women living in a patriarchal society. So far, we tackle topics such as gender gap in the world, some types of obstetrical abuse, or internalized misogyny, for example. In today's episode, we will be shedding some light on the huge topic of female genitalia mutilation, or FGM for short. This episode is based on the amazing work of the Concentrated Strategies for Fighting Female Genitalia Mutilation, the Group for the Abolition of Female Sexual Mutilation of Belgium, and the NFGM European Network. They published a curation of 13 different myths and misconceptions on FGM, and we'll see a few of them today. Please check out the link of this booklet in the description. But let's jump right in. Female genitalia mutilation can take several forms, but technically it is classified into four major types. Type 1 is the partial or total removal of the clitoral glands, the external and visible part of the clitoris, and it is also the sensitive part of female genitalia. With or without the removal of the clitoral hood, the fold of skin surrounding the clitoral glands. Type 2 is the partial or total removal of the clitoral glands and the labia minora, the inner fold of the vulva, with or without the removal of the labia majora, the outer folds of the skin of the vulva. Type 3 is also known as infibulation, and is the narrowing of the vaginal opening through the creation of a covering seal. The seal is formed by cutting and repositioning the labia minora, or the labia majora, sometimes through stitching with or without the removal of the clitoral prepuce and glands. Type 4 includes all other harmful procedures done to the female genitalia for non-medical purposes. For example, pricking, piercing, incising, scraping and cauterizing the area. Female genitalia mutilation is also called circumcision or genital cutting, and it is a form of gender-based violence that happens to women just because they're female. The practice can cause very strong feelings in people, and it is also not very well understood by the general public. There are many preconceived ideas about female genitalia mutilation, such as it being a practice affecting only sub-Saharan Muslim countries. These ideas too often stigmatize these communities, portraying them as barbaric, and the women affected as passive victims. Therefore, a better understanding of FGM is vital in providing quality services to those affected. Also, the idea that FGM is practiced only in Africa has been around for a long time. However, it is incorrect, since there is evidence of its presence in countries such as India, Indonesia, Iran, Malaysia, Pakistan, Oman, Singapore, Sri Lanka, and Yemen. It is done by some Kurdish communities in Iraq and Syria, and in indigenous communities in South America, such as the Anbera in Colombia and Peru. Also. It is practiced by migrant population in Europe and Australia and North America. In 2019, it came to light that FGM is being practiced by a white Christian community in the United States. Seeing FGM as an African practice presupposes that all African communities practice it, which is far from the truth. In many sub-Saharan African countries, FGM is not practiced or only done by some minorities. Among the key reasons that FGM is presented as an African problem 
is that the World Health Organization and UNICEF publications often show the data collected from countries that do agree to add the topic on questionnaires that are often labeled as sensitive. However, many countries in Asia have not added this, and for this reason, there were no official approved figures in those countries, as there were in Africa. Indonesia is a good example of this. Several activist organizations have been highlighting the practice of medicalized circumcision in Indonesia, but the authorities refused to introduce the FGM-specific module in their surveys. This has now been done and has allowed for the prevalence of the practice to become more visible. In fact, more than 50% of girls aged 0 to 14 have undergone FGM in Indonesia. In 2019, an estimated of 4.1 million girls were at risk of being cut. In 25 countries where FGM is routinely practiced and data is available, an estimated 68 million girls will be cut between 2015 and 2030, unless a concentrated and accelerated action is taken. An incomplete view of the regions in which FGM is present can have consequences on social, medical and legal support available for those affected by the practice. In addition, focusing on sub-Saharan African countries only can lead to generalization about black women being considered as victim and mutilated women. The idea that genitalia mutilation is practiced only in developing countries is accompanied by the idea that FGM is not a Western or European practice. However, throughout history, different types of FGM have been found in Europe and in the United States. In fact, until the end of the 19th century, clitoridectomy was done in a medical context. Women were cured by removing their clitoris illnesses, such as hysteria, nymphomania, homosexuality, and masturbation. Once it had been proven that the practice had no positive effects on health, this form of FGM was banned in Europe. All European Union member states criminalize FGM, either through specific provisions or through general provisions in their respective criminal codes. Despite the law prohibiting FGM in all European countries, however, people living in Europe are still affected by it. Estimates based on census data from more than 10 years ago, therefore quite outdated, indicate that 500,000 women and girls are living in Europe with the lifelong consequences of mutilation. Recent internal calculations by the NFGM European Network increase this number to almost a million. On top of these, we must also add the number of women and girls coming to Europe every year, asking for asylum on grounds of being affected or at risk of FGM, which are estimated to be at least 20,000 per year for the last five years. Finally, we must also consider the number of girls living in Europe who are at risk of being cut estimated to be around 170,000 in the 13 EU countries. This data relates only to the women and girls originating from countries outside of Europe, where FGM is a tradition. The risk relates mainly to when they go back to their country on holiday, for example. For instance, in France, there have already been 29 recorded cases of FGM being practiced on French territory but there may be more that are unrecorded. A study estimates that 28% of girls born in the 1980s in France with a mother who has undergone FGM had also been subjected to FGM. 
either in France or on a visit to their mother's country of origin. This rate fell to 1% for those born in the 1990s, following some public court cases which took place in Paris during this period. Let's look at some more European examples. In Belgium, specialized organizations have been in contact with doctors who have received requests from parents to practice FGM on their child. In March of 2019, a Ugandan woman was convicted in the first case of FGM in the UK for having had their three-year-old daughter cut in her home in London in 2017. It is vital that everyone, professional or citizen, raise any risks or cases of FGM in which they may be witness. This will potentially save hundreds of thousands of girls living on European territory. The aim of reporting is not necessarily to punish those involved, but above all, to put in place mediation and awareness rising in order to protect the girls. The second myth we will be tackling today is Is female circumcision obligatory in Islam? Religion is one of the reasons most often raised in defense of FGM. The practice is often seen as a Muslim practice, and this is because it's done by different Muslim communities. Nevertheless, not all Muslim communities carry out FGM, while several Christian do. This is the case in Burkina Faso and Sierra Leone, for example, where FGM is practiced both in Christian and Muslim communities. Although mutilation is mentioned in certain sections of some religious texts, the practice is not obligatory in Islam nor in other religions. Some religion authorities oppose the practice, others encourage it. FGM is practiced in a complex context of norms and beliefs. And these are some of the arguments used in favor of the practice. Tradition, social cohesion, controlling of women's sexuality, beauty, etc. Many combinations of these are possible. And although religion it is sometimes included in this context, this element cannot on its own explain its existence and durability. There is a difference, however, between the African continent and Asia. In Sub-Saharan Africa, the practice precedes monotheistic religions. In Asia, the practice began later, and it is seen as a religious obligation in the same way as male circumcision. In Indonesia, it is in fact called female Islamic circumcision, with the aim of ending FGM and offering support tailored to each person affected. A thorough understanding of its origin is vital. A specific religion is not in itself an indicator that someone practices FGM. There are more reliable factors to indicate if there is a risk, such as the prevalence of the practice within the family, or the country at ethnicity of origin. Are people who practice FGM barbaric and irrational? This reasoning is simplistic and bordering on rational discrimination. It is undeniably true that FGM has severe consequences on physical and mental health of women in the short and long term. As well as being painful, it can also be fatal. Therefore, many people think parents of those who have undergone FGM are bad parents and that the family, the cutter, and the community are barbaric. This is often the first reaction when faced with the reality of FGM. How can a mother who has undergone this practice and who knows how painful it is subject her own daughter to the same thing? 
how can a cutter who hears the cries and sees the pain that it causes continue to practice their profession? How can a father who has lost his sister due to complications following the practice continue to support it? To understand FGM, we should remember that it is not carried out as an isolated action. It is a part of a complex web of ritual and daily practice of constructed gender roles linked to feminine and masculine statuses. In some communities, circumcision is an obligatory ritual in order for a girl to be considered an adult woman, a full member of her community, and a potential candidate for marriage. When FGM is the norm within a community, its members can face heavy societal pressure. Some communities are convinced that FGM is hygienic and beneficial to health. These preconceived ideas can be explained by the vast lack of understanding of the clitoris, and in general of the female sexual organs, in many parts of the world, including Europe. The clitoris is seen as a source of sexual promiscuity, something that might continue to grow if it's not cut, and is also seen as damaging for the baby. Added to this is the lack of understanding and knowledge of the consequences of FGM. When faced with this, subjecting your daughter to FGM cannot be seen as an irrational choice. When they accept to carry out FGM on their daughters, families wish to protect them against being stigmatized and socially excluded and to guarantee that their place in society will be respected. Standing out against the practice can, on the other hand, lead to persecution and violence. It is therefore this latter option which appears irrational. As evidence to this, a Malian man interviewed explained that they would call an uncut woman Bilakoro Muzo. This means that even if she is a woman of a certain age, instead of being treated as an adult, she will be treated like a little girl. Moreover, several researchers and activists believe that awareness-raising campaigns against FGM, run by international organizations, are tainted with neocolonialist visions. One of the arguments used by colonizers to justify colonization was that they had to bring civilization to inferior races. This idea was conveyed in Western anthropological narratives at the time. And colonized women were perceived as oppressed, powerless and voiceless, who had to be protected by their masculine partners and their customs. As a consequence, some international and Western campaigns surrounding traditional harmful practices are, to this day, fed and strengthened by the idea according to which Western society is civilized and non-violent, and all other societies are barbaric, irrational, and developing. Is FGM only a women's business? It is certainly true that those most affected are women, as they are the one to undergo it and suffer its consequences. In addition, it is often, but not only, women who decide that a girl should be cut, not only her mother, but also grandmothers, aunts, and even friends and neighbors can be part of it. In many communities, it is mostly the women, the traditional cutters, who carry out the procedure. This is why, around the world, many initiatives to end FGM are focused and target women. However, FGM is a practice anchored in patriarchal traditions in general. It is often an obligatory rite of passage for a girl to become a woman. This patriarchal practice is part of controlling women's bodies and sexuality. 
and it is part of the spectrum of gender-based violence. In many affected communities, FGM aims to guarantee women's morality, and therefore that of society. Also, the social pressure which forces parents to subject their daughters to the practice is kept in place by the whole community, both men and women, on one hand, men participate in perpetuating it as individuals, such as when a man refuses to marry a woman who has not been cut, or when a father funds his daughter to undergo FGM. Also, men as a social group are the primary beneficiary of patriarchal systems, which guarantee their social and economic power. Given the power they have in society, they undeniably have a role to play in maintaining or abandoning FGM. Seeing the women and girls in their family suffer from FGM can have psychological consequences for them. Although men's sexual satisfaction often used to justify FGM is rarely questioned, the sexual consequences also affect men. Some men have traumatizing memories of their first sexual encounters with an infibulated woman, where the social pressure forces them to open their partner to prove their virility men have vital roles to play in ending FGM as member of their society. It is important that they clearly express their wishes to end the practice and that they participate in awareness-raising processes. They have to be informed of the damaging consequences of the practice in order to be able to participate in abandoning it. Men's lack of knowledge on the issue can be explained by the significant taboos surrounding FGM. Because of this, women and men rarely talk about it. They do not know each other's opinion and continue to practice thinking that the other wishes for it to continue. UNICEF's first report on FGM from 2013 shows that in many countries, women underestimate to what extent men wish to abandon the practice. In Guinea, Sierra Leone and Chad, more men than women are against the practice. FGM is therefore not a women's business, but affects the whole community. A woman who has undergone FGM is always a victim. FGM has very different meanings when it comes to femininity, depending on cultural interpretation. For some communities, it is seen as essential to create femininity, whereas for others, it is seen as erasing femininity and the possibility of being considered a woman. Authors believe that, in the West, the clitoris has become the symbol of women's emancipation. Consequently, FGM is the symbol of women's oppression. But critics think that this is a Eurocentric and reducive way of seeing reality. Although it is obviously important to recognize FGM as a form of balance, being a victim should not be an identity. It is important to also see women as agents of their own lives, and the vast internal resources needed to reconstruct their life after a traumatic experience, which sometimes requires also the help and support of professionals. I believe this quote from a psychologist of the GAMS Belgium is very powerful. The woman that is received in the consultation room has undergone mutilation. She is not a mutilated woman. This is because victimization can slow down resilience and psychological reconstruction, and this reflection is relevant to all other forms of gender-based violence, such as domestic violence or rape. So, this was part one. 
In this episode, we tackled five myths about the practice. We learned about its geographical representation and cultural backgrounds. Join me next week for part two for six more interesting viewpoints on cutting. Can women who have undergone FGM experience sexual pressure ever again? And what is the real connection between male circumcision and female mutilation? Feel free to join me next week for the new episode, but in the meantime, don't forget to rate five stars and follow the podcast on Instagram and TikTok. As always, keep the conversation going and see you super soon. Bye!